Coming on the Agony Column podcast, Alan Schuess. In our time, you know, people can live apart and talk on the cell phone, communicate by email. We have this rapid sense of communication, but we're not together physically, and that creates a kind of disruption, I think. A literary critic connects with readers through his fiction. You know, these disconnects have always been with us from, I suspect, from the earliest moments of what we call human. It's never too early to become human, coming on the Agony Column podcast. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Driving back through New York City, and with Billy's music still in the air, I had a lot of time to think about what I wanted to talk to her about when she awoke and to rehearse how I might phrase it. Taking a deep breath in my mind, this was how I began. Your mother and I got married very young. This sexual spark snapped between us when we met. I know, I know, you don't want to think about your parents and sex, or at least you don't want to think about it because you find the subject slightly disgusting. That's really the other side of the incest taboo, I think. And if you don't know what that is, I'll give you the short version. And if it interests you, you can take an anthropology or psychology course when you come back next term. Whichever department they teach that stuff in these days, I'm not sure. And I hope you're planning to come back next term. Meanwhile, we'll find you a good doctor, and maybe you can get a part-time job at Starbucks. Maybe you're at the bookstore, Politics and Prose. You always like going to their cafe. Maybe there's a job for you there. I know the owner slightly since I go in there a lot. I could go in and speak to her. But the main thing is the therapy. You've got me very worried, Seely, setting that piano on fire. Alan Juice is the author of three novels, including The Grandmother's Club and The Light Possessed, three collections of short stories, a memoir titled Fall Out of Heaven, and a collection of essays listening to the page, Adventures in Reading and Writing. He serves as a book commentator for NPR's All Things Considered and is a member of the writing faculty at Georgia Mason University. His new collection of novellas is The Fires. Thank you for joining me, Alan. My pleasure. Alan, one of the things that interests me most about this book is the form itself, the novella. It seems to be making a comeback. Well, it's never wholly disappeared, but it's very difficult to get them published. My dear late friend John Gardner was once asked by Harvard University Press, I guess this would have been, oh, 30 years ago, to judge a novella contest that they wanted to start. And... um, He said before he could even read the first manuscript, they told him that the first readers didn't like any of them because they were too long and some were too short. They had set a a hundred-page minimum and some came way over and some came in too short. So they never sent him any manuscripts to judge and closed the contest. (laughs) So, uh, and and then there was a series at uh, Random House published, I guess, in, in the late 50s, early 60s, uh, a series of novellas. I know Blair Fuller, who's one of the founders of the uh, Squaw Valley Writers Workshop, had uh, his novellas come out that way. Uh, and then Jim Harrison, the, over the last 20 years, has been has published, I guess, three, maybe even four collections of novellas, a trio of novellas in each book. So it's present, but uh, it's a little bit, you know, I mean, you can't find it everywhere. It's like, it's like absinthe. One thing that the novella is particularly good for is it's more adaptable as a movie, isn't it? I mean, it's more the correct length. Hmm. I hadn't thought of that. Okay. Let, let's make these into movies. <laughs> they, they're, they're quite suitable for that. I'm wondering if you would talk about when you chose to write these as novellas, 
what made them novellas as opposed to short stories well, or I, novels? I, I didn't choose to write them as novellas. I just started writing mm-hmm. uh, what I would call a story, and and they got a little bit longer and more complicated than than the short story, as I understand it. And so they went to you know, 50, 60 pages in manuscript length, and so not a short story. I don't think, I wouldn't call them long short stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are rare birds. And they're certainly not novels. They're not even short novels. So somewhere in between. Somewhere in between. But I didn't set out to write a novella. I just set out to write a story. Interesting. One of the things that we find in the first novella, The the Fires, is right off the bat, there's a lot of very interesting uh, portents and omens and foreshadowings. Could you talk a little bit about how you use that within that novel, novella? Portents and foreshadowings. Well, I, I mean, I don't think consciously of, of, of events in that way until I go back and revise. Uh, what, what do you think? What specific? Well, there's one uh, point where she has, a, where uh, Gina has a dream, mm-hmm. and and she sees it as a kind of a portent. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, dreams. I find dreams very boring when they're other people's dreams, and I don't think my dreams are anything I should inflict on anyone else. But if a character dreams, uh, I suppose you have a uh, an absolute necessity to make it dramatically important. Otherwise, it's just as boring as a dream in real life. Could you talk a little bit about how you use the dreams in this story to structure the story to as flashbacks and to, to fill in some of the story? It's a really has a really complicated and interesting structure. Well, you know, I, I don't try to complicate things, uh, <laughs> and God help me, you know, I hope whatever I do is interesting, but I, I just try to do what I need to do in order to make the story move along, and if in a long piece of work, I go back in time, then it seems to me that that's absolutely necessary in order to fill in. But, you know, in a, in a short story, in a classic short story, I don't think there's room for flashbacks. Um, you know, it stops the action. But in a novella, you have a little more uh, range. If, if someone, you know, there's a contract that you make with the reader, or the reader makes with you. You know, if you give them something that's 60 pages long, they say, okay, I'll give it a little more time than, a, than I'll give a story, but not as much as I would a novel. If you give them a story and they see, and they get to a section where there's a flashback, um, well, it's kind of like getting a loaf of bread and finding some. Um, on, you know, unbaked dough in the middle of it, you know? I mean, so I don't think of flashbacks have a role in this short story. Maybe they do in the novella. Certainly in novels, you know, because the, the, I say there's a different contract. Somebody, the reader of novels says, okay, show me everything and anything you can do. I'm willing to put up the time. This story is a, is a really interesting look at a woman on the cusp of a number of changes. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about some of those changes and give us an idea how the story unfolds? Well, she's she's uh, more than mid-career in what she does. She's uh, menopausal, and she's uh, unbeknownst to her, she's about to lose her husband. So, um, you know, in life we probably know about a third or maybe half of the iceberg, and the rest is up to the, the gods and fate. So. She moves with what she knows towards what she doesn't know is coming and tries to make the best of what happens. 
the fact that that Gina is menopausal is really interesting, and you you write about it with great authority. Can you tell me wh- whence you derived your information? Well, I'm not at liberty to reveal all of my interviews on the subject, but um, you know we have this odd. Who, I don't know where it first came from, that odd dictum that says, write what you know. I mean, if everybody wrote only about what they knew, we, you know, we'd have very, we'd have micro, micro stories about a, a very small, infinitesimal sliver of experience. Young people wouldn't be allowed to write about old people until they grew old, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Shakespeare couldn't write about women, you know, Balzac couldn't write about his female character. Flaubert would not have allowed to have published Madame Bovary. So I think that's a very narrow dictum. I, and I'm not sure where it comes from. The, I guess the utter realistic school, uh, I suppose, or else, well, where, where do you think that comes from? I guess it's an easy way to get somebody going. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a way to prime the pump, so to speak, mm-hmm. because once you start writing about what you know, it's not too far. It doesn't take too long before you find you're going to have to make something up just to make your story interesting. Yeah, but the write about what you know dictum says you, you have to stop at that point, right? You're not allowed to do it. I have a, a writer friend uh, who claims, I mean, she's a published writer. Uh, she's written many books of stories. She claims, and I didn't see the letter, that she got a, she sent a story to the New Yorker about a, with a black character and, and the editor turned it back saying, uh, you're not black, so we're not going to take this story as good as it is. Now, that that's apocryphal, but I mean, that seems to me the limit of a uh, good lesson about how writing about what you know can stop you from making art. Well, it shouldn't, and it hasn't for many people, and apparently not you. Well, you know, I've never been a woman. Uh, you know, life is long, and I suppose there's always that possibility, but uh, I don't see it happening. But then Gina Morgan doesn't see what's moving toward her as she moves toward it. Um, I didn't know until I thought about today on the way over what was in her name. I mean, she seems like a realistic character, but her name, God help us, is Gina Morgan. So she's got two magical creatures in her name. Gina is in Jin, the, you know, the Arabic word for, for genie. And Morgan, who is uh, the name of a great character out of, out of um, early English uh, literature, Morgan Le Fay, who's a, a witch. Yeah, the earliest witch. Merlin's mother, is it? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So here she is with this ordinary you know, middle-class woman going for tests because she's uh, becoming menopausal, and she's got the name of these two magical creatures. I didn't know that when I, when I started working with her. I just named her. It, you know, in a story that can make things change. I suppose if you name a racehorse Speedy Swift and, uh, you know, it plods along at two miles an hour, right, you have to accept the reality of it. But in a story, when you do something like that, it can open up the reader's imaginative reception of it. One of the things I really liked about this story were all the disconnects in it. It, it was like a series of hung-up uh, phone calls and, and mm-hmm. cell phone transmissions. Mm-hmm. And I know... Personally, I find cell phones a very frustrating means with which to communicate because I never know if the other person on the other end is hearing me or if indeed I am hearing them. Mm-hmm. Well, the cell phone is really actually a metaphor for everyday life. I mean, life has been like that long before the cell phone was invented. But imagine what it was like when you had to write a letter that had to go 
by courier to someone who was going to take it aboard a ship and travel for uh, three weeks or three months across a large body of water, and the letter was then taken by a courier on the other side of that body of water. And so communication that now takes place in milliseconds would be conducted over the course of months, if not years. Uh, I guess the most famous one in American history being the Battle of New Orleans, which was fought after the the uh, Civil War had ended. Um, but, you know, these disconnects have always been with us from, I suspect, from the earliest moments of what we call human evolution. Uh, you know, the first... Uh, ape to walk upright says to the second ape or grunts to the second ape something that the first ape misunderstands and they start a war. Or, uh, you know, they, they fight over sex. Or, uh, you know, I, I think it's just part of the human condition. Cell phones just makes it easier to rail about. Your, your characters seem to exist in, a, in the twilight zone, really. They are between everything. They're mm -hmm. between uh, youth and age. They're in Russia. Her, her husband, Paul, is in mm -hmm. Russia. Mm -hmm. And Russia's in the midst of a complete chaotic flux. And it's mm -hmm. kind of, but it, what's interesting, it's a positive chaotic flux. We, it seems good. Well, it seems to me there's what that's, again, you know, I'm trying to write as a realist. That's what life seems to be like. You know, what John Lennon said, right? Life is what happens when you're making other plans. So these characters are Lennon-like in that regard. Could you talk about the portions set in Russia? Did you, did you travel to Russia? Yes, I did. In, in 1986, I traveled to Russia to write a book about my father. My father was a, um, grew up in, in uh, Ukraine and in Russia, and he served in the Red Air Force. And uh, as a, had a great wild and woolly story. He was crash-landed a plane in, in the Sea of Japan in a storm and abandoned. It was picked up by a Russian, by a Japanese freighter and went to live in Japan for a while and then went to Shanghai and joined the China Mail Service and then eventually came to the U.S. And in, in the late 30s. And so I thought at his funeral that I would write a book about him. Because he, you know, he would always harangue me about these heroic stories of his life, and of course, a kid growing up with a father who's telling him all these heroical stories about himself is not going to listen very attentively, or perhaps even rebel against them. But I decided, as I as I said at his funeral, that I would go to Russia and write his book, and I took my son with me. So my son had turned 21 at the time on this journey, and so I I've seen uh, these, I saw these locations, and uh, wrote the book. And uh, here they pop up again in, in, in a work of fiction, some uh, oh, almost 15, 16 years after that trip. The Russia that you portray is in a chaotic state that's reflective of the character's inner states as well. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how you use these kind of reflections between the inner and outer world and use dreams to, as well, to externalize our what what is happening inside us well again you know i'm not sure that that's what i know that i'm doing when i'm doing it i'm just really trying to tell the best story i know in the best way i can at the time that i'm writing it but as you know as you talk about it i do see those uh, associations you know the inner life of the characters reflected by the outer 
chaos of the, that period of glasnost and such. And also in geographically disconnected, uh, you know, people live apart. In our time, you know, people can live apart and talk on the cell phone, communicate by email. We have this rapid sense of communication, but we're not together physically, and that creates a kind of disruption, I think. We have, you know, the, we have a sense of intimacy that is completely uh, the antithesis of intimacy. Uh, I suppose it's something like, you know, appropriate for the world of, for the age of telephone sex and, uh, you know, pornography on the internet, which uh, pretends to give you the most intimate uh, understanding of human sexual behavior, but is, you know, purely mechanical. So this creates a kind of psychological fault line in us, I think. And I guess I'm trying to track those steps that people take along that fault line. One of the events that informs the background of this story is the death of Paul and Gina's child. And we find this out gradually. It's not apparent to us at first. Yeah, the child appears fleetingly, almost like a ghost of a memory in both of their minds. I mean, that's one of the things that can set a, even the best marriage on the, on the path toward oblivion. People can't deal with that kind of uh, unjust event in which the, the youngest dies before the oldest. Uh, it seems uh, you know, the world is turned upside down and it's very difficult for people to, to live under those conditions. So yes, they're both unsettled by that, and yet, and yet in their case it draws them closer together. This is this is as you say. It's it's that's a rather unusual result for for such an event, and it's interesting to see how over time uh, in their marriage, as as you read read the story, how it has drawn them together. Yeah, I say it's unusual, but um, you know that's just the way it happened to them, and I tried to make the most of it when I told the story. One of the interesting images in this stories. Of course, the fires, there's many of them. There's the, the fires of the hot flashes that Gina's experiencing. Mm -hmm. And when she goes to Russia, we're going to spoil the part of the story here. Her husband has died in an auto accident. Mm -hmm. and he, his, Well, you know that before, I mean, when you're more than less than halfway through the story, so you didn't really ruin it. Okay, good. Um, I mean, that's, you know, melodrama is building a story toward that conclusion. But, you know, uh, tragedy is learning how to live with a conclusion like that. So I'd like to think I'm working closer to the latter than the former. Right. What interests me is the way that, and once Paul, Paul's last wish is that he be cremated. And mm -hmm. in Russia, this proves to be more difficult than one would expect. Mm -hmm. In Tashkent, in, uh, where the new government is Muslim-oriented, and so they... Um, they don't want to allow for the cremation. So he's got to find a bunch of Hindus who are an exception in that state and uh, get them to help him, or she has to get them to help her uh, cremate Paul. The scene that, that unfolds as this is, is written is kind of funny. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting infusion of humor into a story that's otherwise rather grim. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, um, you know, you've got to find the, the, the humorous side to a situation like that. If, if you're presenting it, otherwise, as you say, you're just going to write a dirge 
And uh, the, you know, she's trying to fulfill his wish, his last wish. And uh, she's all alive and well, and she gets a, a bumbling uh, neophyte of an American embassy official to try to help her. And uh, there's, you know, he, he, there's something going on between the two of them, which is is comical, and uh, the the uh, way in which she bumps up against the uh, strictures of the Islamic-oriented state and the demands of the um, the uh, Hindus who uh, conduct the cremation ceremony is, is comedy. I mean, comedy uh, is, uh, you know, the meeting up with the unexpected, right? The laugh that comes at the unexpected. You know, the, the Ari Bergson, uh, you know, used the example of, did he use the example of the slipping on the banana peel? Well, if he didn't, he would have, because that's the spirit of his work on, on the philosophy of comedy. So you're walking along and you slip on a banana peel and it's, funny because you didn't anticipate it like the uh, there's an urban legend about and I, I i believe i say i believe i don't couldn't show you the story but uh the newspaper report but i believe i did hear about it on the radio in which these two young lawyers are playing touch football in a high rise in chicago and one they're in their stocking feet and one goes back for a pass and catches the pass but is sliding along at such uh, velocity that he goes through the plate glass window and the last thing he says to his friend as he's just about about to fall is oh shit he mouths this to his friend now that's comical isn't it even as the man drops about 55 stories to his death this story also has a lot to say about the body living Mm -hmm. and dead Mm mm-hmm and as you wrote this story, what were you thinking about your own body? And had you, what were you thinking about other people's bodies? I wasn't thinking about my own body. Uh-huh. I mean, in a way, when you write, you're disembodied. I mean, you're, you're just trying to convey a voice that, that comes to you somehow from, from one source or another. One never knows from where it comes. And you put it down, you, you know, you type. Um, so it's a little bit like a seance. So you're just taking dictation from some disembodied spirit or part of your imagination that's not actually part of your body. In any case, I wasn't thinking of my body uh, as I wrote. I think of my body after I write, when I go to the gym or take a walk along the ocean. I, I love what a, a waggish contemporary writer, now dead, William Gaddis, once said about the novelist. He says, the novelist is the hulk that follows the work around. <laughs> so for the most part, we're, you know, we're trying to get this disembodied voice down on the page. As far as the motifs of the body in the story, I have to say I wasn't thinking consciously about those. I was just trying to describe what I saw and felt in the situations I was, I was describing. One of the the aspects of this story that I find pretty interesting is the way that you uh, bring in uh, Paul's voice in the middle in the mm-hmm. big section in italics. Yeah, a- and italics are not are generally frowned upon. Mm-hmm. And what made you make that choice? Well, that technically, technically, that is Jinnah's understanding 
based on everything that she has heard about his death and everything she knows about him and what she's heard from him about his trip. I mean, she's talked to people in Tashkent after the accident. She's talked to the embassy officials. She's talked to people who worked with him, colleagues in his business ventures, and she knows him. She's spoken to him on the phone just before the, in the week before the accident. She's talked to, to, to everyone from whom she could get any kind of report about what happened. So technically, this is her reconstruction of the accident, which she puts forward uh, as she's flying to uh, Central Asia to fetch his body. We, let's talk about the exorcism. Mm-hmm. This is written in a very different voice. I, I really love Tom Swanson's mm-hmm. voice. Thanks. It, it's it's very enjoyable and light and and, and funny. Mm-hmm. One of the things you do with that voice it is to you, you have this kind of interesting affectation where he'll say something and he'll just throw in the word etc. Mm-hmm. This is a really interesting uh, way of bringing on a casual voice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I mean, he's not uh, a philosopher. You know, he's, he's a sound engineer. And uh, so he's a, a more an offhand guy who works with uh, a lot of different kinds of musicians. And so he's, he's got to be fairly affable and understanding, um, married to a very difficult jazz pianist for, for uh, a couple of years. So... Uh, He's he's uh, learned how to be, uh, I guess, what we call more laid back than than uptight. The fact that it just occurred to me, the fact that he's a sound engineer and mm-hmm. a recording engineer, mm-hmm. that's m- much in the way you describe your own writing. As in taking dictation from taking dictation <laughs> from disembodied spirits. <laughs> Well, I, had, I didn't see that either. In the same way, I didn't see Jenna Morgan as the, the wedding of two witchy names. Could you talk about creating that voice, that, the voice of Tom Swanson? Mm-hmm. And he, as, an, as the story begins, he's forgiving a lot of people. Yeah. Well, he's telling, technically, again, he's telling the entire story to uh, a, a woman who has performed this exorcism on him. Uh, a, a very difficult uh, physical exorcism that's allowed him to try and get rid of all of these terrible uh, the pressures and the torments of these terrible events that have occurred and and free him to raise his child so in, in the wake of his her mother's death and and his you know his his terror at, at being left alone in the world with this child so He's telling this in a way. The format is vaguely something like a, a, a presentation of oneself at a, at a an Alcoholics Anonymous or Gamblers Anonymous meeting or you know Sex Addicts Anonymous meeting, that kind of thing. So he's uh, he's performing the traditional ritual of seeking forgiveness from everyone whom he has harmed, right? Whom he sees he has harmed. And this gives the story the way you tell the story. Because we we understand that he's talking to somebody, it gives it a, a a really interesting source of tension. Because as we're reading the story, we're waiting in a sense to find out who exactly it is he's mm-hmm. talking to. Mm-hmm. Was this intentional? Something you planned from the beginning? No, but now that you speak of it, you know the the um, the literature teacher in me recognizes that's a form that it's it's been used rarely in modern literature. But if you think of uh, 
Camus, The Fall. He does that there. Uh, and there's a wonderful uh, short novel of Carlos Fuentes called Aura, in which, which is told in the second person, in which the narrator addresses the entire story to, uh, I won't ruin it for people who haven't read it, to a particular individual who is absolutely essential to the drama. So uh, it's an address and a form that's used very rarely, but here he can tell his story and then in the aside speak to Erna, this uh, spiritualist who's performed this uh, supposed exorcism on him. The exorcism aspect of this, it's very interesting the way you work this out. You manage to create a, a feel of the ephemeral but avoid entirely a feel of the supernatural. Mm-hmm. And, and tell me why you made that decision, or was that a decision at all? Did that just happen? As that a just happened. That just happened. That's just the way this guy sees it. So I'm trying to, you know, give life to the to his particular vision of the world. And his vision of the world is an engineer's vision of the world. Mm-hmm. So he's got a kind of a down-to-earth feel to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the exorcist flunks as far as he's concerned but it'll you know it allows him it 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 succeeds insofar as it allows him to see his life in a way he hadn't seen it before there are a lot of really interesting kind of visions in in this story that and i want to ask you about the dogs you you have Mm -hmm. a whole chapter named the dogs Mm -hmm. and and that vision is brief and fleeting but very powerful Mm -hmm. yes it's one of the most now that actually something I experienced, and it was one of the most bizarre events that I've ever uh, lived through. And when I describe it to you, or you know, when someone reads it, you'll see it's something that I might not have lived through. Uh, you know, driving at 65, 70 miles an hour down, uh, you know, a, a major turnpike in, in a, uh, you know, in and amongst a very crowded uh, highway, a lot of cars, all of us moving at very high speed. And up ahead, unbeknownst to us, uh, a pack of dogs um, has escaped from the back of a van that's been carrying them, and they start running in the opposite direction up the highway, in and amongst the cars that are racing toward them. So it, it's kind of like, you know, they're playing dodge car, and it happened too quickly for us to play dodge dog. But, they, but fortunately for all of us who were there at that high, on the highway at the moment, they managed to avoid getting hit, and they eventually got over to the side, but it happened so quickly that I don't think any of us uh, were aware of how close we came to disaster until it was over. Left me absolutely shaken. And that's rather a a theme in in both of these stories about how close we come to to peril without actually experiencing it and -hmm. and what we take away from that experience. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's that we can't plan for those things. We we can imagine them, but we usually imagine them completely wrong. I mean, the hor- you know the the horrors of actual life we know very well. I mean, a friend of mine with um, pancre- uh, pancreatic cancer had an operation performed on him, and it's an operation I believe called the Whipple. And the doctor told him as he was going under that this was the operation that could save him if they could perform the operation. And it was going to take about seven or eight hours. And my friend at last woke up after an hour and a half. He came out of the anesthesia and he looked at the clock and he, and he said to himself, oh, no, I'm doomed, because he knew that they didn't perform 
the Whipple. They saw that he had multiple tumors throughout other organs and on in other organs of his body. Um, that's horror that you can anticipate to some degree. Uh, I think um, Norman Mailer's wife, Norris Church, just described in an interview uh, an operation she had again for cancer. Um, and the doctors told her she had a 1% chance of surviving this operation. And she said she woke up out of the anesthesia and there was a note on her pillow from her son, uh, John Buffalo. It said, Mom, you're the 1%. Um, but again, those things we can anticipate, but driving along on a highway and dogs, a pack of dogs racing toward you in, in, in around other cars is something you could never have imagined. So I won't take credit for thinking that up. On the other hand, Anything bizarre that happens to us, you know, has to you have to make that convincing on the page, or or it doesn't matter whether that happened to you or not. So we, you know, we make what we know and have experienced credible, and we make what we imagine equally credible if we're any good. You appear to be a man who enjoys his chaos. <laughs> I'm not sure I know what you mean by that. Well, your stories have a a. a a certain chaotic feel to them. They, these lives are not neat, and they're not. They haven't been neat heretofore, and they will not be neat after the events in the stories. Mm -hmm. Maybe uh, you know, I, I work with something more uh, decorous and reserved in in shorter stories. Um, you know, but when you have room to move around in, as you do in a novella or in a novel, then you can allow a little chaos to. Uh, seep in and you because you have the time to deal with it but i don't think you want to write about chaos in a 10 page or 14 page story if you if you can help it although sometimes that happens there's no doubt about it this uh the exorcism also includes uh a, quite a bit about the bhagavad gita mm -hmm. yeah and, and i want to ask you why you chose to include that well why did Tom Swanson included in his story because he was driving up to New England from Washington, D.C., and he brought along the tapes of his wife's, uh, you know, piano career to listen to, and he also brought along these uh, tapes of the Bhagavad Gita, and now and then he throws those into the tape player. Um, why did he have those tapes with him? Well, he's a sound engineer. He gets a lot of samples, so it may be one of those fortuitous moments when he, uh, you know, he brought along what was at hand and what was at hand turned out to be absolutely what he needed. His wife, uh, Billy, is, as, as you said, a, a famous jazz pianist. And you have some really interesting descriptions of how she started her work and how she started her art. Could you talk a little bit about um, some of the ideas of art and, and commerce that, that, that rise through this story? Well, she she's a very gifted piano player, but and her career starts um, almost by accident when she jumps up on the stage at a very young age, at the end of a, of a gig at a New York jazz club, where you know she's been, she, that she's been sneak that she sneaked into because she's underage, and she starts playing. And you know, a bad pianist would have been stopped after about fourteen, fifteen seconds. But suddenly, the musicians who've just ended their gig stand around and listen to her and listen to her and. They listen to her play for hours, and uh, so it's, it's, you know it's, that's a kind of accident. But she had to be prepared for the accident. She had a great talent, which she hadn't yet exposed to the world. 
so you can handle chaos if you're prepared for it up to a certain extent, I think. But you have to be prepared. I'm wondering what you might think of how your readers experience these stories because they're both very realistic and, and deal with a lot of intense events that, that come into people's lives mm -hmm. so that a lot of your readers probably either are experiencing menopause or living with somebody who's experiencing menopause, mm -hmm. experiencing the death of, of a spouse or a loved one. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how you feel that they are going to what they're going to take away from from this your your versions of events as opposed to their actual experiences well that I, you know that's not for me to say as to what's going to what they're going to take away I, I'll tell you a you know a comical version of that that was one uh, uh, I, I read recently at a, a little writers conference and um, I read the opening section of the exorcism exorcism which uh, excuse me of the fires which in which Jenna uh, is with her doctor, and they're testing uh, for you know menopausal condition. And uh, a, a man came up to me, you know, man in his, I guess, mid fifties, came up to me and said, "Wow, thanks for writing that. It's really helped me a lot." <laughs> but no, no woman has yet said that to me. But um, you know, he reminded me of that Bill Murray sketch, sketch, sketch. Excuse me. It reminded me of that Bill Murray sketch from the early days of Saturday Night Live when Murray's a character who's just learned that his wife has been diagnosed with breast cancer, and he's at a party, and he spends the entire party railing, saying, "Why me? Why me?" But we don't want to put this horrible stuff on. We'll, we'll cut this out, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, I I I just presented. Uh, you know, I don't know how people are going to take it, um, but. Um, you know, I can't be blamed for making any more chaos in their lives than is already there, and I, I guess I try to give it some shape and form, this volatile energy that we all live with every day. I, I, that's, that's how I felt reading these stories, is that it really Good. does give a, a shape and a form. Good. Uh, uh, enables us to wrap our brain around. Well, that's all we have, isn't it? A yeah. way of, you know, every new experience comes to us, all this new information comes to us and we we're continually reshaping it and reforming it and uh, I guess story writers poets playwrights sculptors painters give some kind of shape to the to those experiences so people can look at a painting and say aha now I know how I feel about the color red or see a, a dance and say ah yes that's how I I feel about, about leaping Wow, that's that's a great insight. In the exorcism, you do in fact talk a little bit about books on tape, and you mention a couple of authors, Stephen King and mm -hmm. Tom Clancy, mm -hmm. not in the most flattering terms. Well, you know, I I once uh, I was living with my wife in Huntsville, Texas, and teaching two days a week at the University of Houston, and so I was driving back and forth. That's um, about 75 miles, uh, twice a week, and each so 150 miles each day. And I somehow worked out where I, this was some years ago, 20 years ago. I got a, I got a gig uh, that would allow me to review audio books for uh, a major New York magazine. 
And that's how I filled the time, so I could uh, listen to these books as I was driving through rural Texas. And um, so I heard a lot of these books. And I know what happens when you listen to books on tape also. It's a driving hazard much worse than the cell phone. If you get caught up in a conversation, that's one thing. You get caught up in a good story, that's another. You might as well be driving on Mars. Could you talk a little bit about the difference between uh, reading a book and, and hearing it? That, that's something I, I, I've actually never listened to an audio book, so. Mm-hmm. Well, you have to, you know, there are two kinds of audio books, the abridged and the unabridged. So you have to be aware. You have to read the label. Mm-hmm. Um, and make sure you don't buy the unabridged. Uh, you don't buy the abridged. Um, I found it. It was an odd experience. Um, it, it's a little bit like uh, you know, sex with a prophylactic as opposed to sex without one. I mean, you're not having the actual experience. I mean, the really best books are the ones that we can read at a rapid rate because they just pull us along in an enormously fast clip and. We can read much faster than somebody can read aloud, and so those books are not are kind of off when you hear them on tape. Um, and then there are those books that are so deeply enthralling, not just in an emotional but also in a philosophical way. You know that you stop and you read a paragraph, or you read a page, and you reflect, and you look at the ceiling, or you think back on your own life, or look out at the ocean and wonder what's going to happen next and wonder why you're wondering about what's going to happen next. And you certainly can't do that when, when the book's on tape because it's moving along at a rapid rate. So and the great thing about the book is it's reading shows us how we might, in the best of all possible states of being, manage our existence because we control the pace to a certain extent. It's a bit you know, it's, it's like performing music. Um, I mean, what, what's on the page is a musical uh, notation. So, you know, you, you, you have certain parameters in performing Mozart, but every performer has its own, his or her own idiosyncrasies and his or her own vision of how to perform Mozart. Same with any piece of music. So uh, your Tolstoy is a little bit different from my Tolstoy. Um, you know, your... Uh, Mailer or or Virginia Woolf was a little different from my Mailer or Virginia Woolf, but we perform those works at our own pace when when we read. So audiobooks you know, take that control away from us, and so it's not the best way to know a book. Uh, I find the the reading experience it, it's a really interesting experience that I don't think is is often regard thought about much because it it really turns the reader the the person who's experienced the art you have to supply a large part of the art yourself which mm-hmm. is what is so appealing about reading mm-hmm. yeah I, I know I, I once uh, I wrote a book about John Reed and his wife Louise Bryant and way led on to way and uh, uh, Warren Beatty was making Reds at the same at the same time and so he he got all of the book and invited me to um, to uh, come and talk to him in his studio and he was cutting the film and uh, we were talking about the difference between the books and movies and he said yeah he said you know we had to redo this uh, scene where you know the the russian army is riding on this train it didn't look right the first time i saw it in the in the cutting or in the in the editing room 
So we went back to Spain and we brought the you know, Yugoslav army or the Spanish army, whatever it was, at great expense, and we redid the scene. And I said, yeah, well, I just have to write, the Russian army came over the hill and it cost very, you know, nothing. So I've thought about it in that way ever since. You know, we, we have tremendous uh, control at the same time. We're also out of control because we're in the hands of the writer in the same way a musician is in the hands of the composer, even though he or she is changing and altering and reshaping the notes that uh, that that are on the on the score but it it it's we're in control to a certain extent unlike watching a movie where you know we're completely at the uh, under the control of the movie maker and, you know we can't change we can't alter we can't stop we can't go behind the character and 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 see what's going on there so it's um, it's the least how how do one how should one say it? it's the most un or anti-totalitarian experience one can have in, in in the world of art I think, and that is tremendously important for us as citizens as political creatures but also as uh, living thinking creatures beings with imaginations you know we need to feed our imaginations and that's what reading does. And if we don't feed our imaginations, you know, we're going to come to a certain social, moral uh, disaster in our in our lives. So, you know, reading is tremendously important. And as I think of it, maybe someone out there is is writing something about the you know the ontology of reading. I've seen bits and pieces of people thinking about the what reading really means. Uh, there's some wonderful passages in in uh, in the first volume of Proust's uh, grand novel on the subject. Uh, Walter Benjamin has written beautifully about it in that he says, you know, we read uh, a novel to warm, I believe he says, to warm ourselves in the heat of another's life. Um, and I think Maure, Andre Mauro once wrote that, you know, what reading does for us, particularly reading a novel, shows us what it's like to know the end of a life. We can never know the end of our own lives from from a, any kind of objective perspective, but reading a novel, we know how lives seem, how they feel, how they look, what they mean when they end. There's been, uh, there's a small but burgeoning uh, set of scientists, neuroscientists, who are looking into reading hmm. have you have you no, looked at any of oh it's it's a really fascinating mm -hmm. uh, in a set of work there's um they're trying to find out what happens in our brains hmm. when we read and what what parts are the are red excited. the red part lights up on the screen i mean i don't know how can they, how can they know how can they know what happens besides that? I mean, in, in a way, it's kind of, you know, it's the physiology of reading, but... The physiology of reading, but not the... Not the, the inner essence of reading. Not the soul. I mean, I was once in a room of, uh, in a Texas elementary school, uh, writing an essay about uh, literacy that, that eventually came out in a book of my essays. And uh, to be there with a group of elementary school children when they're first learning to read when they're first sounding their letters sounding their words you know 20 30 of these kids in the same room is kind of like being there 
in the first spring when all the tree frogs began to sing. It was just an extraordinary experience. They, their lives will never be the same after that, these kids. And, and so, you know, any country that has an illiteracy rate uh, that's as low as ours is in deep trouble. I mean, I don't mean just being able to read, but being able to understand and read for pleasure, not just for, for uh, practical purposes. Um, when I was doing that story on on uh, literacy, I met a truck driver named James. Actually, my, the essay I wrote was eventually called "Writing It Down" for James. He was a, he was a truck driver in, who uh, had retired in D.C. and learned to read when he got into his sixties because all his kids had learned to read. He thought, well, he should do he should learn how to do that too. But he spent his entire career as a truck driver up and down the East Coast without knowing how to read. Um, he knew the shape of a certain sign meant he was getting to a certain place in the road. Uh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if he's in a supermarket and he wanted peas and it didn't have a picture of peas, he'd tap somebody on the shoulder and say, does that say peas? Um, so, you know, and he gained an extraordinary amount of power once he, once he knew how to read. So it's a tremendous amount of personal power that we gain when we learn how to read. Everybody has that possibility. Most people throw it away because they don't read novel stories, poetry, uh, good essays. They read the newspaper at best. So in a way we have an illiterate, literate culture, not, not what we should have at this stage in our, in, our, uh, in our country's life. You mentioned newspapers, and newspapers have recently been slashing coverage of books mm -hmm. and book reviews. Yeah, which is crazy. That's like eating your, your seed in winter, isn't it? Newspapers are published for people to read, but then you don't encourage people to read by running a book section. I mean, it's absolutely insane, isn't it? This is where, you know, I say it's, it's, it's the ultimate in bottom line thinking. Um, and, and it's going to come to a very bad end. But like most dire situations that we know of in public life, at a certain point, somebody will recognize this and, and it will turn around. Let's hope so, or you know, we're going to be in deep, 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 deep trouble. I'm wondering if you read Sven Burkett's Lost in the Blogosphere, uh, an article he wrote for the Boston Globe. Mm -mm, no, I don't know. Because a lot of people who are worried about the decline of uh, newspapers, reviews of newspapers, point to the internet and say, well, mm -hmm. that it's sucking all the uh, life out of the newspapers because there's so many, so many literary bloggers. I'm wondering what your feelings are about literary blogging on the internet. Is that useful? Well, it should be, but in my, in my experience up until I read your review of my book on, on your blog, <laughs> I haven't found it. So uh, I have this unfortunate attitude that developed when a, one of my students told me to read this particular blog because there was a th somebody made a threat on my life in this particular blog and I thought well that's not good um, you know it was an offhand remark uh, I had written a, a review for the Chicago Tribune and someone had taken exception to the, to the way I wrote the review and someone else chimed in all of, anonymous of course someone else chimed in and said yeah he should be executed for that. Um, so I've always had a very odd feeling about blogs since then. <laughs> <laughs> such an uh, such an event can color your perceptions of blogs. I can yeah. I, I can get that. <laughs> and then there's a you know there's a there's a uh, an MFA blog, um, 
And if you teach in an MFA program, you sometimes hear about things that are in it from your MFA students. And in this case, it came to this student's, the attention of a student of mine because my name had been mentioned in it. Someone was choosing between George Mason, where I teach, and uh, Florida State, I think it was. And someone came onto the blog, you know, anon again, anonymous, saying, well, uh, you know, I hear Mason's pretty good, except for Chuse, because uh, I took a, a workshop with him once, or had a conference with him once, and he told me that uh, this story wasn't going to be published in the way, in its current form, and, and it was, so he mustn't be full of shit. In any case, um, <laughs> Um, they also mentioned Florida State, and they said, well, you don't want to go to Florida. This, this is going to be an X-rated story, so you may want to go to that. But in any case, they said, well, you don't want to go to Florida State because that's a place where all the writing teachers fuck their students, and so-and-so, they name someone, so-and-so just knocked up one of his students and had to marry her. And this is all done anonymously, and, you know, it's kind of distressing when that kind of stuff is, is there uh, in anonymous statements all, all over the uh, internet. But there's also a, a number of finely written blogs that, that really pretty much, and net, ma net zines, they call them, mm -hmm. that also just pretty much try to emulate what mm -hmm. print has done. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, have you looked at any of those? Do you think that, in other words, do you think that the fact that the internet is not, as Theodore Sturgeon once put it, 99% crap. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> well, 90% of everything is crap, as mm -hmm. we well know. Mm -hmm. So is it worth, is the internet just so big that even the 10% that might be good is overwhelming? It could be. It could be. It's not my experience, but then that's just one person's experience. Do you think that, um, I want to talk to you about the difference between criticism and reviewing. Mm-hmm. What, how do you see it, and how do you do it? And maybe you could talk a little bit about the difference between writing a review and writing a review that's going to be heard on the radio. Well, you know, reviewers are different from critics. Um, Renata Adler, years and years ago, said a wonderful thing about reviews. She said, it's, it's the consumer reports of literature. So you write a report, and you encourage somebody to spend, you know, 20 of their hard-earned dollars or not spend 20 of their hard-earned dollars for a particular product. Uh, and so it's the front line of, of uh, you know, the literary production, but it's not deep criticism. Uh, unfortunately, we, you know, we've moved out of an era where serious literary criticism has, has uh, thrived. The great age of literary critics seems to be over, you know, we don't have any more Edmund Wilsons, we don't have any more Alfred Kazins around. The best we have, and the best is quite uh, excellent, is somebody like John Updike, who's a working novelist writing reviews for The New Yorker. He's, he's fabulous, but he, you know, he's not a literary critic, although he says some wonderfully brilliant things whenever he writes about, about a novel or a book of stories. But, um, you know, there's a remark of Freud's where he says every every country gets the Jews it deserves. You know, meaning you know they're really playing out their own distorted imagination on on this group of people. Um, we have the age, I suppose, that we deserve. Literature has no great critics to guide the readers, uh, and so uh, that's the bad news. The good news is that somebody like Updike. 
uh, or your humble servant here, or uh, some in poetry, something like Robert Pinsky, has taken on you know taken on the job of performing critical uh, duties as well as reviewing duties at at the same time uh, to to help you know the the uh, average reader try and find his or her way in you know among uh, an avalanche of books. There's a collection of book reviews by Stanislaw Lem mm-hmm. uh, called uh, A Perfect Vacuum. Mm-hmm. And in that collection, he has a, a piece called Pericalypsis, mm-hmm. which is about the pericalypse is the apocalypse that has already come to pass, only mm-hmm. nobody noticed. Mm-hmm. And Suppose they gave an apocalypse and nobody noticed? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, according to, to Lem, the pericalypse that has come to pass and already noticed is that because there are so many books being published mm-hmm. now that we could no more find the seven books that would save civilization than we could find seven specific grains of sand in mm-hmm. the Sahara Desert. Mm-hmm. And his, his the, the book he's reviewing proposes that the solution to this is to pay people not to write. <laughs> you know, uh, a, a friend of mine, a woman named Josephine Carson, who was a writer, alas, now dead, who lived in San Francisco, uh, came up with this plan once where, you know, it'd be like farm supports for, for writers. Um, and and she, uh, she had a particular animus toward jo- Joyce Carol Oates, and she said, you know, the government would pay Joyce not to write for two years, say. Uh, or, you know, the, the government would pay, uh, uh, let's say, David Baldacci not to write forever, <laughs> right? Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a comical proposal, um, uh, an immodest proposal because, you know, we're making really serious judgments about these writers as we say these things. We've been speaking with Alan Shoes. His new collection of two novellas is The Fires. Thank you for joining me, Alan. My pleasure, Rick. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.